0: Hello everybody. This is Aaron Good, and you're listening to the American Exception Podcast. This episode is part seven of our Destiny Betrayed series on the JFK assassination. Now here's Haley Roundsville.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Haley Roundsville, historian and residence at the Culture.tv. You can find us over on YouTube and Twitch where we talk more history, politics, and current events from a leftist perspective in collaboration with people like Aaron and other scholars and activists. Our guest for the next two episodes of our Destiny Betrayed series is one of, if not the most respected scholars on the JFK assassination, and someone I personally hold in the highest regard. That's James Eugenio. He's screenwriter and co-creator of Oliver Stone's new film, JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass. Later next month, a four-hour version of the documentary, titled JFK Destiny Betrayed, will be released on DVD, Blu-ray, and Amazon Video. The series shares its name with DiEugenio's book Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case, which was first published in 1992, and a second edition was released by Skyhorse in 2013. Following the release of Oliver's groundbreaking film, DiEugenio co-founded and co-edited Probe magazine from 1993 to 2000. Along with Lisa Pease, he later co-edited an anthology entitled The Assassinations, pro-magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. He also served as a guest commentator on the anniversary reissue of JFK back in 2013. Diogenio uses his website, kennedysandking.com, to combat the constant drip of JFK misinformation coming from the government, corporate media, and even supposedly alternative media. These efforts culminated in D'Eugenio's 2018 book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. It's a masterful takedown of the Lone Nut thesis put forward in Reclaiming History, a book written ostensibly by Vincent Bugliosi, but so ridiculously bloated that some speculate it was produced with help from uncredited co-authors who may or may not be affiliated with a certain three-letter agency. So exhaustive is D'Eugenio's debunking of Reclaiming History that it serves as an excellent standalone work on the assassination. In addition to responding to virtually every notable book and article that gets the JFK story wrong, DiEugenio has made regular appearances on Leno Sanik's Black Op Radio podcast for more than a decade. He has a true poster soul. To sum it up, there's no one who knows the case better, or has done more work on it, than Jim DiEugenio. In light of all this, the new Oliver Stone documentaries would seem a well-deserved capstone of sorts for Jim, and their warm reception a long overdue thanks to a scholar whose work is often criminally underappreciated. Today, James is talking with Aaron about the assassination of South Vietnam's Ngo Dinh Diem on November 2nd, 1963, and the events surrounding the still poorly understood coup, which predated JFK's own assassination by less than three weeks.
0: James DeGenio, it's great to be here with you.
2: Thank you,
1: Aaron. Thank
0: you so much. So I wanted to have you on here to talk about uh, some things that are related to the discussions that we've already had with uh, James Galbraith and John Newman. And going back at looking at John Kennedy's policies in Vietnam, which, of course, explode after his death, uh, you trace a lot of the his thinking on Vietnam to that trip as a congressman that he made across Asia in 1951, why do you think that this uh, trip to Asia had such an impact on John Kennedy?
2: Well, first of all, since about 2013, uh, maybe a, a little bit earlier than that, I, I've, I've made one of my main preoccupations, this examination of Kennedy's foreign policy. And it's not just Vietnam and Cuba, but the whole um, wider view of Kennedy in the third world. And one of the key issues, I believe, um, in fact, I think it's central, is Kennedy's meeting in Saigon in 1951, with um journalist Seymour Topping and diplomat Edmund Gullion. Okay. I believe that it, this cannot be separated from what happens with Kennedy once he gets into office. I, I really believe it's that central, all right. And I was, and I'm, I made a, a lecture about this in 2013 at the Cyrilic conference, which I was, I was very surprised that everyone was kind of unaware of this. Okay. But um, it, it went over extremely well, uh, mainly because so many people in the research community are preoccupied with Kennedy's policies in Cuba and Vietnam, and they don't look at the other parts of the big picture. In my opinion, that meeting, which uh, Bobby Kennedy was at, okay, and he later said that after the meeting with Edmund Gullian, this had a very, very big impact on my brother's thinking. And what, what Gillian essentially explained, and Topping had the same uh, had the same points he was making, is that remember this is 1951. The United States is backing the French attempt to retake Indochina. All right. And it's they're spending a lot of money. It will go up even more under Eisenhower. All right. Uh, In fact, it will go up exponentially more under Eisenhower until at the end, the United States was supplying nearly 80% of the money, okay, to to retake Indochina. All right, which, remember, and, and this is another point to remember, and this is another point that gets washed out, okay? This was against Roosevelt's policy. He had decided that he did not want to back european colonialism okay after the war he did not want things to go back to where they were all right okay and so kennedy has this meeting and first of all he noticed how successful the viet Minh were because some of the restaurants had nets over the outside terraces to prevent grenades you know from from bombing the inside of the restaurant all right and so and so he understood that the info he was getting from the french military attache uh was not completely accurate you know he was essentially saying they were winning the war etc all right So he meets with Edmund Gullion at this at this rooftop restaurant. And he asks him that question. Are. Is are the French going to win the war? And Gullion says, France is not going to win the war. All right. Ho Chi Minh had fired up the Viet Minh to the point that they would rather die. Then go back under the yoke of colonialism, all right? France could not win a war of attrition, okay, for the simple matter that the home front would not support it, all right? Now, if you if you take a look at that message, <clears throat> that's precisely what happened in the United States, and by the way, and Gullion said the same thing. He said. If the United States tries to replace France, they will meet the same fate, okay? All right, now, it's one thing for somebody to have a meeting and for him to communicate a message. It's another thing for the recipient of that information to actually take it to heart and make it a part of his foreign policy views. Well, see, that's what happened with JFK, all right? And if you read the recent scholarship about JFK's foreign policy, and I'm talking here about Robert Rakove's book, Kennedy, Johnson, and the Non-Aligned World, you will see that this had an impact on kennedy's whole policy in the third world all right and it wasn't just vietnam all right and kennedy started making these speeches that if you if you try and under reading these speeches today and understanding how in the grip the united states was of this cold war hysteria that was started by Paul Nisse, and NSC sixty eight, okay, how that just kind of took over and infected the whole State Department and uh, the uh, and and the defense industry, et cetera, and how this became the keynote of American foreign policy, and it was going to stay that way for approximately uh, thirty years, right? Um, that. His speeches, when you read those, are really, really exceptional in the fact that they're so visionary and they're so insightful. He he was essentially saying that it's not just a Republican problem. It's a problem the Democrats have also. We have to separate out as to what are the real causes of this unrest in the third world. Okay, you know, and it's not the fear of communism. What it is, it's 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 this growing flow of nationalism, which is going to eventually overtake almost everything in the third world. And by the way, it wasn't just NSC sixty-eight, it was also the long telegram by George Kennan. Okay, Kennan's long telegram was kind of like the fuse. You know, NSC-68 was like the dynamite that, you know, exploded this whole Cold War fortress America, you know, foreign policy upon the United States. Yeah,
0: Jim, do do you know that in the case of the long telegram, which is typically cited as being the birth of, like, containment theory, and then NHTSA's NSC-68 is really rollback, you know, more or less, right, and and the – um, an argument for a huge rearming of America and the creation of the military industrial complex, both uh, in both of those cases, Atchison and our Atchison was the boss of Kennan and NHTSA and presumably had great impact on both of those, on both of yeah. those
2: things. I, I, I have little doubt that that, 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 was likely the case because Atchison was uh, sort of like the, uh, the Democratic version of John Foster Dulles, okay? And and by the way, Kennedy, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Kennedy grouped both of them together, okay? He, he said on the eve of the 1960 uh, uh, election campaign to harris Wolford, he said, we have to win this thing because if we don't, and it's Symington or Johnson, It's just going to be Atchison Dulles all over again. (laughs) So he he thought that they were sort of like two peas in a pod, except one was a Democratic version. The other one was a Republican version. All right. And he was against both of them. All right. And so he begins to make these speeches. All right. And um, they culminate in the Algeria speech. Of 1957, you know, which, it, it, and, and if you haven't read that speech, I really recommend your listeners read that speech. Because when you consider the fact that here we are in 1957, under the sway of Eisenhower, John Foster Dulles, and Alan Dulles, okay, and this whole attempt by Foster Dulles to ring the world with these anti-communist treaties all over, you know, all all over the globe. And the fact that Kennedy gets up and he says, what we're doing in Algeria is wrong, okay? And it's unbelievable that the administration does not see that what just happened at Dien Ben Phu is now going to happen in Algeria and we're gonna be on the wrong side of history again. What we should be doing is really helping our friends in Paris and leading them to the negotiating table in order to design a graceful exit from Algeria, all right? And we have to do this because our objectives should be number one, to free Africa. He, He actually said that, by the way, in the speech. We should be trying to free Africa, all right? And secondly, we have to save the French nation because France was being split asunder, okay, by this. And by the way, I'm not exaggerating very much at all because this will eventually lead to the attempted overthrow of De Gaulle in 1961 when he actually tries to go ahead and orchestrate a policy that will let Algeria go. Because this war in Algeria was now going through the same thing that happened in Vietnam. So when Kennedy gets up and makes that speech, he becomes a lightning rod. And he got something like 140 editorials, magazine articles, because his office clipped them. Okay. And two thirds of them were negative. Two thirds of them were negative. And so he actually thought, you know, did I make a mistake, you know, in in making this speech? And so he uh, he talks to his father about it. And his father says, you don't know how lucky you are because this thing is going to get worse and worse and you're going to look like a prophet. Okay, And by the way, that's exactly what happened, because in I think in the next year, he made the cover of Time magazine. And the story inside was man out front okay all right and so he now became the standard bearer for this a different kind of foreign policy that the democrats should be advocating the next year in 1958 he reads the ugly american he loves the book okay he bought a hundred copies And he gave them to every other member of the Senate. All right. And then he took out an ad in the New York Times. And then when he became president, he helped get the film made. Okay. If you've ever seen the movie, the movie is about a fictional place in Southeast Asia, which is thinly disguised as Vietnam. Okay. And it's about American foreign policy there and how it's so misguided. And at the end of the movie, the ambassador played by Marlon Brando, okay, understands how wrong he's been, you know, in his approach to the people who want to uh, uh, democratize the country. And, And he says words of the effect that we have to begin to understand that these people in these third world countries they have the spirit that we had when we tried to break away from england okay and we we have to be for something instead of being against everything all right because that's the only way that we hope to win the cold war all right and so those two things i believe and remember, this is 57 and 58. This is like two years before it begins to run. Those things, I believe, should be markers, okay, in Kennedy's whole view of foreign policy, but I believe very important to the whole Vietnam thing. Because once he gets into office, he refuses to go into Laos, okay? And then... Very quickly, in November of 1961, he makes it clear that we're not going into Vietnam, okay? And Bobby Kennedy is kind of the stalking horse at the first big meeting on this, which is in November, I think November the 15th of 1961. And he makes it clear, he says, and I'm, I'm, this is almost verbatim, you know there will be no combat troops in vietnam all right and so the line is and, and and i in in my opinion you can't understand that decision unless you understand what came before it because as john newman says that everybody in the room nearly everybody there was for some version of direct american intervention at that meeting okay everybody and this includes mcgeorge bundy this includes mcnamara okay uh this includes dean Rusk. All right almost everybody uh, maybe george ball was an exception okay but almost everybody wanted to intervene at that time okay he had been advised by Lansdale that, that that's what we should do. Rostow was a hawk. Okay.
0: Lansdale, Lansdale was the person that the the ugly American, the titular ugly right. American, was, was based on.
2: Right, right.
0: By the way, okay. Did, was Kennedy aware of that?
2: I don't know. I don't know if he was. But the point is, Kennedy resisted all of this. All right. And in fact, in fact, and again, this is something I think most people overlook, but you probably had, uh, you since you had Jamie Galbraith on, he probably noted this. John Kenneth Galbraith was in Washington at that time. He had been the ambassador to India. He's in Washington at that time. He hears about this meeting. He, uh, he gets the memo, the Rostow memo which has a recommendation to send um, troops there under the guise of, of uh, agricultural workers, okay? Well, when Kennedy saw that, he had a real problem with this, okay? He, if you can believe it, he actually called the agriculture department, okay? And, and he said, do we need to send in the military to help these people, okay, with these farming techniques? <laughs> All right. And so what happened is that Galbraith came over to Rostow's office. Rostow doesn't want to give him the memo. So a call comes in and he steals the memo off of Rostow's desk, takes it back to his hotel. And he's he reads it and he can't believe it. And so he calls up Kennedy and he says, you're not really going to do this, are you? Okay, And and Kennedy says, write me up a memo to counter it. And so he does, and him and his brother go over the memo. They delay the showdown meeting, and if if you if you take a look at that meeting, it's pretty clear they're following uh, Galbraith's memo and the arguments they make to all the hawks in the room. Okay, you know they're saying things like you know how do you beat an enemy who has the support of the people there you know and how do you make this understandable you know to people in your own party you know because korea you could make understandable because it was an invasion by the north of the south okay but vietnam was supposed to be one country you know and the vietnam are in south vietnam all right okay and so he, like, really, really made it clear that he did not agree with the majority of his advisors, the vast majority, by the way. So he sends Galbraith on this mission to Saigon, and he, this ends up writing three reports. And then they're all negative, of course, you know, and Galbraith had a certain rapport with Kennedy. That went back to his being a tutor at Harvard. And he was very frank with him, you know, in these reports. You know, he did he discourages any further involvement. He says Jim is not the kind of guy that we're gonna be able to back. Okay. And, you know, I think, you know, the best advice here is is, is this country really worth it? You know uh to do battle over it, i don't think it is and so in april galbraith comes back into town and kennedy instructs him to go see robert mcnamara all right about this issue and he does and he reports to kennedy that they had a good meeting and, and mcnamara understands in my opinion and I think this is borne out by the evidence that is the beginning of Kennedy's withdrawal program. Okay. April of 1962. All right. The meeting between Galbraith and McNamara, because why do I say that one month later at the sec deaf meeting? Okay. Which was a meeting of all the, uh, military, CIA, and State Department guys in Saigon. All right. Matt DeMara tells Harkins, who is the commanding officer from the Pentagon in Vietnam, he tells him to stay after the meeting. All right. And then after the meeting, he tells Harkins that we're going to start winding this down okay so i want you to begin to design schedules for withdrawing american forces from vietnam and and according to one witness at that meeting you know harkin's mouth almost hit the floor okay because that was like the last thing he expected to hear all right and he said it's gonna take a while because it's so unexpected. And McNamara says, well, go ahead and start working on it. All right. So this now proceeds and the war, as most insiders know, is not going very well. Okay, most historians, you know, use the example of op the Battle of op okay which i think is in january of 62 which is a disaster you know even though the, the south vietnamese have all the advantages they still lost and john paul Van, who is one of the leading advisors in south vietnam understands that there's no way that the south vietnamese are going to win unless they have direct american intervention and two of his acolytes there, Neil Sheehan and David Halberstam, who are covering the war for the New York Times, okay, they begin to pick this up, that we're going to lose, okay? And, 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 one of the, and it's very, very important, I believe, because Halberstam tried to conceal this, In his book, The Best and the Brightest, which I think is going to come out like in 67 or 68, it became a huge bestseller. All right. I think it sold 1.8 million copies. He had written a previous book called The Making of a Quagmire, which I think was published in 64 or 65. Okay. In which he very clearly, but indirectly, criticized Kennedy. For not getting in sooner with more firepower okay it's very clear in that book john paul van was a hero to both uh and and halberstam because he understood that saigon could not win okay unless there was direct american intervention because diem was such an inept leader okay right and so and so these guys up uh, <laughs> this is and this is so important to understand up until Johnson escalates the war that's what these guys wanted to do they Sheehan and Halberstam wanted to escalate the war then yeah, that, they
0: that, saw – that that point is very important that how well in terms of assessing Halberstam because he is sort of remembered by generic left liberals as the guy who pointed out how the liberalism of Kennedy and Johnson were the same and that that these very smart Ivy League people got us into Vietnam and if and we shouldn't you know that their judgment is somehow suspect and here's the disaster but he's a guy who is just who is even more belligerent than they are than Kennedy was. So this it, it really is important to note that, and it's kind of been forgotten by a lot of people, I guess, because you're the, one of the only people I've heard talk about this.
2: Well, see, the thing is, Kennedy and McNamara understood what John Paul Vann wanted to do, and they were against it. And in fact, Kennedy asked the New York Times to rotate Halberstam out of Saigon, okay? <laughs> because, he, because he understood that Halberstam was going against okay, what, what he was designing to do. So so the thing about Halberstam, his, his, The Best and the Brightest is a very bad book uh, when, when you read it today, okay. He was lucky it came out when it did, all right, when during the midst of this massive escalation that Johnson had done in the wake of Kennedy's death and to him he kind of began this whole myth that well, it wasn't really him, it was actually Johnson himself, which we'll get to, that somehow Johnson was only continuing what Kennedy had begun, when in fact, it's very clear now that Johnson was consciously breaking with Kennedy. And in the film JFK Revisited, we have this audio tape of McNamara and Johnson on the phone and Johnson quite literally says, you know, I had to sit there at those meetings, you know, while you and the president talked about withdrawing, which I disagreed with, but I just wasn't in charge. All right. I mean, how the hell do you get out of a war that you're losing? Okay. And and that's pretty much what he said in this, in this tape. And see, and what happens is what, Very important to understand is that Johnson is the guy who changes McNamara around because McNamara understood that the United States was losing. Okay, all right, and he's had deliberately picked the reports that were deceitful, okay, by saying we were winning as a way of getting America out of the war. Well, see. We're winning, so we can now let these guys go. All right, while understanding that the real reports coming out of a different unit stated the opposite. Because once Johnson switches policies, McNamara knows where those are, and he begins to use those as a way of escalating, as an excuse for escalating the war. And so, and so. Halberstam and by the way to give you one illustration of how bad Halberstam's book is all right in 1962 he actually says that McNamara came to Kennedy because he wanted to try and help, try and help conduct the war we know now today of course that's utterly and completely false, okay, to the point that it's pretty much the contrary of what really happened, is that Kennedy sent Galbraith to McNamara to begin to exit the war, all right? That's what really happened. And you won't find that in the 670 pages of, of Halberstam's book, all right? Now, same thing with Sheehan in his book, A Bright, Shining Life which is really a biography of John Paul Vann, okay? He actually tries to imply that it was Kennedy who got us into the war, all right? You know, which of course, what these guys were trying to do, and I think it's very transparent today, they're trying to conceal that they got what they wanted, which was an escalation of the war. And it turned out to be an utter disaster or it didn't work all right and so they try and blame this on Kennedy okay because Kennedy was opposed to this all right and but look here's the problem it's very simple on the day that Kennedy was assassinated there was not one combat troop in Vietnam okay not one by the end of 1965 There's 175,000 combat troops in Vietnam. That's how fast it was reversed. That's how fast Johnson reversed it. The withdrawal plan proceeds Um, through 1962 and 1963 and the SEC death meeting of May in 1963 is is very key to this because McNamara at that meeting uh, asked for the withdrawal schedules all right and everybody hands them in that I think that was in Hawaii and everybody hands them in and and McNamara looks at them and he says, this is too slow. Okay. All right. We have to speed this up. Now, this is very important because <clears throat> that was not declassified until December of 1977 by the ARB. You mean 1997? Na- Excuse me. Yeah, 1997. 1997. It was not declassified until 1997, and that declassification actually made, made headlines. Tim Wiener in the New York Times actually said the headline on his story was Kennedy had planned for early exit in Vietnam. Okay? He wrote the story, and yeah. it described these new documents yeah he, he also
0: he also wrote that history of the CIA and he wrote and he wrote you know that recent terrible piece in Rolling Stone. and his history of the CIA is actually useful in terms of like citing certain things that happen at certain points and certain disclosures. but he seems to function as some sort of uh, guy who limits the damage of these disclosures as a journalist and both as a, as a historian too. So it's revealing that he would write this. That it gets to the point that even even this must be acknowledged in the in the press that this is a, an important piece of the puzzle,
2: right? And it wasn't just in the New York Times; it was also in the Philadelphia Inquirer. They acknowledge it also. All right. Now, of course, nobody mentioned that Oliver Stone had put this in his movie back in nineteen ninety-one, and everybody was throwing brickbacks at him, okay, for putting it in there. All right. Didn't nobody ever said that? All right. So that comes out in late 1997, and that I believe was a real milestone in the revelation of the withdrawal plan. Okay, now Kennedy sends McNamara and Taylor to Saigon in the late summer, early fall of 1963 with instructions that we can now begin to withdraw from Vietnam. The mission is over, okay? And it's very clear, there's, nobody knows. See, uh, Howard Jones says the report was written before they left in his book, okay, which is a pretty good book. He says it was written before, Fletcher Prouty said it was written during the mission, okay? But either way, it's pretty clear that the real report was being written in Washington, okay? All right? And and some people say it was under the supervision of Robert Kennedy, all right? But then when they get back, there's a couple of people like Sullivan and Taylor, Who want to take out the withdrawal section and kennedy says no okay we're leaving the withdrawal section in the report okay and then he steamrolled the opposition at the meeting okay you know uh, to issue nsam 263 and then he tells mcnamara to go out and tell the press and He opens a window as Damir is walking out and he says, tell him that means the helicopters also. All right. okay. And so that was, I believe that's in uh, October of 1963. And that was the last significant move on the withdrawal program. Now, let me let me elucidate an important point. Kennedy understood. That he was going to have to run for re-election in the next year and so although the report said that everybody will be out by 1965 he did not want to include that as part of the, uh, the NSAM because he was very worried that saigon would fall during the campaign okay and he understood that his enemies. See, the more you study Kennedy, you understand how insightful he was about the other side, okay? And how this really became a kind of uh, minor preoccupation with him. Okay, he was enemies on the right word, all right? And so he decided that will only issue the NSAM for the first thousand okay and then i'll be able to adjust the withdrawal according to the circumstances in saigon okay but it will still will be out of there in 65 and it's very easy to see why because he was designing his withdrawal program around the election okay it's very simple to understand this all right if you want to understand it all right now what complicates this is the overthrow of diem in the early days of november of 1963. this is a very complex interesting story about kennedy not being able to control the splits in his own administration over the war okay Kennedy has one policy. There are certain other people uh, in the State Department who believe that the problem isn't really Vietnam. The problem is really Diem and his brother New. Okay. And most notably, these are Averill Harriman, um, Roger Roger Hilsman, and Forrestal.
0: Oh, and, yeah. and Lodge, who is the ambassador, oh, right? Well,
2: yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to that in a minute. All right. And what happens is, and in my opinion, the two best books on this are Jim Douglas's JFK and the Unspeakable. He has a very nice chapter in there about this. And John Newman's book, which has been reissued in 2017, JFK in Vietnam. They had an ally in Henry Cabot Lodge, okay? And Kennedy had decided to change ambassadors, okay? And I think this is August uh, August of 1963, all right? And he wanted to, and by the way, this is another thing Halperstam screws up, okay? He wanted to appoint Gullion, as his ambassador to Saigon, all right, uh, and, ch- and transfer him from the Congo uh, to Indochina. Dean Rusk overruled that, okay, and so they ended up sending Lodge, which was a terrible mistake, all right, of sending him over there because Lodge was obviously, as Jim Douglas explains, uh, He was obviously in the camp that said, you know, Jim has to either go along with the plan or we have to get rid of Jim. All right. He's very clear on that. All right. And so what happens is this. They, these guys, and I'm going to use a little bit of dramatic license here because it's not proven that Lodge was actually a part of this plan. But I believe from the circumstantial evidence and, and by the way, you know, people misunderstand circumstantial evidence. It's allowed in a courtroom. You're allowed to put circumstantial evidence in court. Okay. And then the jury has to decide, is your view of that circumstantial evidence the only way something could have happened? And if it's the only way something could have happened, The jury is allowed to accept it. All right. Those are the rules of evidence. All right. What I believe occurred was that these guys planned on a weekend, all right, to send a cable to the ambassador in Saigon, knowing it would be Lodge, all right, and They lied to Kennedy about the cable, all right? And then Lodge deceived Kennedy about how it was going to proceed. This this one, I think, is August the 24th, all right? And Kennedy is in Boston, all right? And most of the major players are out of town. And so what they put together, it was very clever what they did. They went to each one of these guys individually, <laughs> and they said, words of the effect, well, we've got blank on board. OK, so we need you, your your name on it. And then when they get to Kennedy, Kennedy specifically asked, is McCone signed on to this? OK, because he knew McCone would not, was, was resistant to it. And they lied to him, and they said he was signed on to it okay well he wasn't all right and so kennedy gives his approval to it under these false circumstances and so then what happens is the cable gets sent but the instructions were that lodge had to go to Jam first and explain the reforms that they wanted and i should do a little digression here the problem was that the Buddhist demonstrations had gotten completely out of control. Okay. And GM and his brother were handling them terribly. Okay. All right. And it there there was literally almost no way out of this. Some people talk about these negotiations between Kanoi and Saigon. I've I've read the book about this. Those negotiations were essentially at a dead end because hanoi demanded that all the americans leave immediately you know before they begin to talk all right and of course once the americans left of course the north vietnamese army would just sweep over south vietnam which is what happened later okay you know so they they had mishandled these buddhist uprisings so badly and and make no mistake the Buddhists were 70% of the population, okay, of South Vietnam, all right? Nixon later tried to lie about this, but it, th- those were the intelligence estimates, okay? And you had, and most people think that it's only, I think his name was Quang Tri, was the guy who called the press there and then uh, set himself on fire. There were, that's not true. There were like eight of those. Okay, and I think one of them was a nun uh, who had done that, you know, and 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 so uh, Kennedy was horrified at what was happening, you know, and and so what happens is that breaking the instructions that were in the cable Lodge did not consult with him; he went to the opposition. Okay. And directly. So, this, of course, was a pretty clear message that the United States wanted DM overthrown. All right. And so, when Kennedy gets back from Boston into Washington, he understands what happened and he's outraged. Okay. And he, he literally says words to the effect you know, this shit has got to stop. Okay. You know, and Forestall volunteered to resign. And Kennedy says, You're not worth firing, okay? You owe me something now. Okay? And so and so Kennedy cancels the cable. All right, he calls up Lodge and he cancels the cable. But the, the thing is, once something like that is set in motion, okay, you you can't just cancel it, okay? You, you know, it, it, it begins to collect the momentum of its own. And Kennedy understood this. OK, and K- Kennedy understood that this is what had happened. The next step is that the CIA uh, cancels the import-export bank. OK, this happened a few days later. All right. And you mean,
0: like it, goes, they, they canceled the credit or the loan that was
2: to be canceled. right. Yeah. And Kennedy says, who the hell told you to do that? And he goes, the CIA guys, sir, it's not a matter who told us under these circumstances, that's in the statute. OK. And he goes, you know what you've done now, don't you? OK. And so and so now he sees the, the handwriting on the wall, you know, that this is this is now gained the momentum that he can't control. And he sends Torby McDonald over to Saigon. All right, his lifelong friend. Okay, and he and Torvin McDonald is pleading with Jim. Okay, you've got to get out of here. Okay, this is something's happening. Okay, and and you know we're, we're not going to be able to control it. Okay, so you have to escape into the American embassy or something. All right. Okay, and and of course that mission failed. You know, Jim and his brother did not think that things were so dire as they were but they actually were because what happens is that lodge gets rid of the cia station chief who he knew was uh in DM's uh, favor okay and so what happens then is that conine essentially becomes the station chief uh in in saigon all right and Slowly and exorbitantly, what happens is that they wait for the right time to strike, which is late October, uh, early November, all right? And and by the way, uh, uh, Two, who's later going to take over, he's going to be Nixon's guy, was actually a part of the rebellion, all right? And what happens here is that DM plays right into Lodge's hands. Okay. DM thinks that Lodge is on his side, but he's actually not. Okay. And he begins to try and escape the presidential palace, which is being shelled. And he does a very dumb thing. He starts calling Lodge. Okay, as to where he's escaping to. All right. And Lodge, of course, is in cahoots with Conine, and Conine is essentially running the plotters. Okay. So little did he know, he was playing right into the hands of Lodge and Conine. And then when Conine was uh, questioned about this by the church committee, Years later, they asked him. They said, "Why didn't you just order a plane to get Jim and his brother out?" Okay, and Conine had the stupidest excuse I've ever heard of. He said, "Well, there really wasn't a plane in Saigon." Now I'm sure you're aware of this. The United States had a whole fleet of planes in Thailand. Okay. All they had to do was ask permission to get a plane from thailand to fly over to saigon and they could have got them out of there okay but they didn't all right and so Conine also testified that they were getting conflicting messages from washington okay you know the state department said to keep on going okay the uh the White House said, "No, no, okay, please slow everything down, okay." And I think those were coming from Robert Kennedy. All right, and so of course, what happens is that Lodge and Conine give away where they—I think they were in some church they were hiding—and they came out defenseless and thinking that they were being spirited to the airport when in fact uh they were going to be killed kennedy was shocked that this had happened and it's described in a meeting with him and max taylor okay you know he was so upset he just walked out of the room and he there's two things that happened because of this number one Kennedy decides to call back Lodge for the purpose of firing him. Okay. And secondly, right before he goes to Dallas, he has a meeting with Forrestal. Okay. I think Forrestal was the last guy to see him uh, before he left for Dallas. And he said, once I get back, there's going to be a comprehensive review of this whole Vietnam thing including how we got involved, okay? Because we have about a one in a hundred chance of winning this thing, all right? And that's the last thing he said (laughs) about Vietnam before he went to Dallas. Now, of course, what happens is that, number one, Lodge is not fired when he comes back, okay? When he comes back after Kennedy's assassinated, There's a meeting which Lodge is a part of and which almost everybody was at that meeting. I believe this was on the 24th. Okay. Almost everybody who's at that meeting says that we all understood that Johnson was going to have a much more militant attitude towards Vietnam than what Kennedy did. And the other thing, of course, is that there is no comprehensive review. Of, of how America got into Vietnam, all right? And so right then and there, 48 hours, okay? You can see right then and there, there's going to be a sea change, okay, in, in, in what's going to happen. Now, John Newman developed a relationship. The, the reason I had John Newman and Jamie Galbraith as our two talking heads on JFK revisited about Vietnam was because of course, Jamie Galbraith is the son of John Kenneth Galbraith. And John Kenneth Galbraith was one of the very, very few people who was on Kennedy's side here. Okay. That, you know, this is useless to try and, and save this country. Okay. It's, it's, The same thing is going to happen. That's what happened in France. All right. And John had a relationship with with McNamara. All right. And um, John had permission to listen to McNamara's debriefs because they had developed this relationship. All right. And so John went out to the Pentagon and and, uh, they didn't want to let him listen to him, but he called up McNamara and McNamara ordered them because what had happened is in late 1967, McNamara was more or less falling apart. Okay. If you read Tom Wells book, the war within, okay. McNamara would come in some days and he would just sit there at his desk. You know, and, and and he'd start crying. OK, and then he'd go over to the curtains and he buried himself in the curtains. OK, his secretary talked about this later, you know, because he understood that this is going nowhere. OK, this whole Vietnam effort. And so. Two things happen as a result of this. See. Matt Damara understood what had happened, and he understood he had gone along with it, okay, when he shouldn't have. And so when he does his debriefs, and by the way, till the end of his life, he didn't understand whether he had been fired or whether he had resigned. <laughs> I, think, I think the record indicates he was fired in late 1967, okay? And um, he does his debriefs. And John was allowed to listen to his debriefs. And in those debriefs, he says. Kennedy and myself. Had decided. That we could help the Vietnamese. We could send advisors. We could send trainers. We could send equipment. But we couldn't fight the war for them. All right. And once the training period was over. We were leaving and it didn't matter if we were winning or if he were losing, okay? We, we were simply going to get out, all right? And see, that decision is completely consistent with what Kennedy learned from Gullion and Topping. Okay, we were not gonna do what the French did, all right? Okay, now the other thing that happens, and this is where I have a real beef with Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, Okay, and that crappy movie, The Post. All right, is that McNamara decided secretly that he was going to write the true history of the Vietnam War? Okay, what had really happened? If, do you right. do you
0: think do you think that that is perhaps? Him having some recollection uh, about what Kennedy had said to Forrestal, or that it had come up in a conversation with Kennedy and that that's what Kennedy was referring to, like something that where McNamara knew that yes, that's, Kennedy that's wanted to do gonna, that. That's
2: what I was going to say next. I believe that the Pentagon Papers has its origins in the fact that McNamara saw what, what had happened, you know, and that what Kennedy wanted was a comprehensive overview of how the hell we ever got there in the first place. All right. You know, and, and then by the way, you want to hear something almost funny The night, Everybody remembers that infamous image of the American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy.
0: Yeah. It's an, it's an air America. It's an air America helicopter actually.
2: And, and how all these Vietnamese are trying to get out. That night, Henry Kissinger called an old academic friend of his and said, now remember, remember, this is 1975, okay? And Kissinger says to him, we should have never been there. Now, Kennedy came to that conclusion (laughs) over a decade earlier, okay? So here we have this supposed foreign policy maven who was just catching on to something that Kennedy realized over a decade earlier. So, yes, in answer to your question, I believe the Pentagon Papers, the origin of the Pentagon Papers, is what happened between Kennedy and McNamara and how Kennedy was determined to get out and Johnson reversed that policy. And in fact, in the Gravel edition, it's not in the New York Times edition. Of And by the way, that's an important point. It's not in the New York Times edition of the Pentagon Papers. But in the Gravel edition of the Pentagon Papers, there is a chapter called "Phase Withdrawal, 1963-1964, where they address this issue. And by the way, let, let, let me add one more thing. There are now three editions of the Pentagon Papers. Okay. There's the New York Times edition. All right. There's what's called the Gravel edition. OK, that didn't reason it's called that is because these were given to Mike Gravel, the senator from Alaska, who was reading them on the floor of the Senate. OK. Uh, and that's how they got entered into the official record. Ellsberg was looking for somebody to do that. Several people turned him down, including George McGovern, including Pete McCloskey. All right and he finally got gravel to do it that's the second edition okay now more recently there's been a complete edition of the pentagon papers which is even longer than the gravel edition okay and the pentagon papers are so important i mean if anything i believe the pentagon papers are are even more important than historians give them because it's very clear from the pentagon papers that it was simply a hopeless thing from the beginning you know and that atchison atchison understood the whole concept they should have about neutrality but he deliberately broke that policy okay because they they had made it and, and this is a terrible terrible mistake they he and truman had decided that they were going to back the french in their efforts to retake indochina okay and when they made that decision this outraged ho chi minh Okay, and this is like right in the Pentagon Papers. Okay, they admit it, all right, that when, when Truman and Atchison made the decision to back the French in their effort to retake Indochina, that was a turning point in the struggle, okay, where Ho Chi Minh realized that the real enemy was going to be the United States, okay, all right, and so, and so that's, there's all those kinds of things in the Pentagon Papers, but that's one of the, one of the very most important things, you know, that this whole war, as John Kerry said, had been a mistake from the start. And and, and we owe that. And this is why I'm so, I was so upset about the Spielberg Hanks edition, where they, that movie, The Post, I mean, the, the scene... I had to see the movie twice because I couldn't believe how bad it was. Okay. Uh, the scene where Graham, Catherine Graham, goes in and confronts Robert McNamara about the Vietnam War is one of the most terrible twistings of history you know that, that I've seen. And that's really saying something in, in the movies because Catherine Graham was LBJ's buddy on the Vietnam War, okay? In 1964, Johnson had these meetings with Catherine Graham and the editors of the Washington Post telling them that he had planned on escalating the war. And he had them in his pocket. And in fact, in fact, he once said, that Catherine Graham is worth two divisions to me in South Vietnam. She was backing the war. So was Ben Bradley. Okay. You know, and, and the idea that somehow she was some kind of a dove on the Vietnam war and McNamara was the bad guy by putting together these Pentagon papers. I mean, really that that, that was enough to make me throw up. Okay. Watching that scene. Trying to make Catherine Graham some kind of a hero on Vietnam is, 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 the utter, is utter idiocy, okay? You know, and, and so that, this is why I believe that McNamara set out to work secretly. And, and, and re- really, the, the whole giveaway to the Pentagon Papers is that Johnson didn't know about them because McNamara deliberately kept it a secret from Johnson. That tells you something. OK, you know, and and so that's this is my take on on Kennedy versus Johnson in in Vietnam. And it goes all the way back to 1951 and it goes all the way forward to the beginning of the writing of the Pentagon Papers. OK. All right, And so. In, in, in my opinion. There's simply no question about this now. And and there's the real tragedy of this is that people like Sheehan, people like Halberstam, people like Johnson who kept on saying, Let us continue, you know, when he knew damn well that he wasn't continuing Kennedy's policy in Vietnam, and he actually he actually even tried to get McDemair to take back what he had said about withdrawing. That's in another conversation. Okay, all right. And then, and then he heard about, see, what happened was that one by one, all the Kennedy guys left, okay? They all left, Salinger, George Ball, uh, George Bundy. Okay, one by one, they all leave. All Schlesinger,
0: right. Schlesinger also. Right.
2: Okay. And Schlesinger even wanted to get somebody to run against Johnson in 1964. Okay. And so uh, what happens is that they understand what Johnson's doing. They understand what Johnson's doing. And there was some kind of a gathering at Roland Evans' home one night. And they say, words of the effect. That Johnson is trying to place the Vietnam War on Kennedy's grave. Okay, and Johnson hears about this. All right, so not only does he know, but they know what's happening. They know what's happening. All right, and and so be- between Johnson, Halberstam, and Sheehan, very powerful people, the New York Times, okay. We get this distorted image. And, and by the way, let, let, me, let me add one last thing here. To show you how dishonest Halberstam was, when JFK came out in 91 and was creating this huge controversy, part of it being over its depiction of the Vietnam War, Halberstam got on TV And said, words of the effect, there was no military type of conspiracy to change policy in Vietnam. Uh, And I I know this because Oliver kept all these uh, video segments that were on TV at the time. And me and uh, Rob Wilson, the producer, okay, were watching this thing. And we turned to each other and started smiling. Because of course, Halberstam was part of this. Halberstam backed John Paul Van and Lansdale, okay, who wanted increased involvement in the war. This is how much he wanted to erase, you know, that part of his career. So he could be the uh, sort of guy on the white horse in the best and the brightest when he realized this is all gone to naught and he was dead wrong, okay you know he wanted to wipe out the memory you know of of what he had been before and the fact that kennedy opposed him all right so that's in 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 a rather long discussion that's uh, that's my take you know on uh, on on what happened in vietnam all right i i've I've done a lot of reading on this of late, and other people john john newman and jamie galbraith were one of the, uh, there were two of the pioneers in this, okay. And Jamie Galbraith because of his father backed John's work, but there's been other people who have come around and, and these guys are good historians. Okay. And, and they've said the same thing. And to be specific, it's, uh, I've named Howard Jones from the university of Alabama, uh, Gordon Goldstein's book, which lessons in disaster, which uh he was working with bundy on that book uh bundy passed on and he went ahead and completed the book and uh, by the way he was going to be in the film jfk review i wanted him in the film because of his relationship with bundy okay he backed out at the last minute all right and then there's david kaiser who wrote another good book american tragedy and that book is um includes a lot about laos okay which john did in his uh, revision in 2017. david kaiser's book is very good and then there's the james blight book virtual jfk okay uh and that book is sort of like an oral history where several people got together down in georgia and began to actually debate this issue and if you can believe it at the end of the day uh the people backing the kennedy withdrawal plan actually won that debate okay but that's a very good book because that has a document and, and annex in it all right so these so john and and jamie were out there okay and also fletcher prouty but the judgment of history has now become much more than just that okay and the judgment of history, of course, I believe, says that Oliver Stone was correct, and he was correct to trust those two guys as being his main advisors on the whole Vietnam issue. All right. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I would say that everything in the film, the feature film, has turned out to be correct. So here's my question. Has anybody apologized to Oliver Stone? Okay, about the hazing he took, you know, when that film came out over this issue? Not that I know of. Okay, nobody that I know of has just said, well, it turned out that Oliver Stone was right. I haven't seen I haven't seen that anywhere. Certainly not Tim Wiener, even though he wrote the story in nineteen ninety-seven about Kennedy's withdrawal plan. All right. All right. And so I believe now today. That this issue has been settled. It was actually settled before, you know, but people in the MSM and also people on the left, like Alexander Coburn and that other, uh, I don't want to tell, say what I really think of him, Noam Chomsky, okay, you know, somehow resisted this, okay, that somehow uh, uh, John Newman and Fletcher Proudy and Oliver Stone were all up a tree. When and, that was not the case at
0: all, and let me let me add that I I believe also that Max Taylor admitted that Kennedy uh, later uh, attested uh, uh, to the fact that Kennedy was trying to pull out. I I'm pretty sure that I remember that as well. No, yeah,
2: Max Taylor said
1: that. So if Max you think a, if,
0: if you think about that, the three people at the top of the military and, and the defense, you know, the McGeorge Brundy is national security advisor, Taylor is the head of the JCS mcnamara is the head of the pentagon and they're all saying that kennedy was pulling out like these are not dovish people they're all kind of they're all testifying against interest i don't i don't understand with once the documentary record also flushes this out which they withheld for decades from the public it really seems like it should be settled even francis bator who was lb one of lbj's officials admitted in kind of a debate with a back and forth. He said, yes, the policy was that there was a Vietnam withdrawal. Now, he goes on to say that Kennedy would have, he thinks Kennedy wouldn't have accepted defeat there, but that would have entailed a reversal of the actual policy. Even that is saying, yes, Kennedy was withdrawing from Vietnam. I don't really see how the other side has much of an argument at this point. With that, we will resume this discussion in an episode in the very near future, so stay tuned for that. I want to thank Jim DiEgenio for taking the time to speak with us. He was originally going to do a postscript segment, and we just started talking and ended up being much longer, and so I thought that that was very fortunate, and I've made this into two episodes, so you've heard the first part. Part two is coming up. I also want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode, Casey Moore for the artwork, and Mock Orange for providing our music.